Hello and welcome to Idea City, the TEDx YYC podcast that highlights the people whose ideas are making our city better. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, and today's guest is Darren Kraus, journalist and founder of Livewire Calgary. Darren, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure to be here, Andrew. So, Darren, what is your big idea for the city? Uh, well, I've got lots of big ideas for a lot of things, but in particular, just related to my profession, uh, a big idea would be a, a little bit more focus on local journalism and the importance that it has in our city. And why is that? Uh, well, I think that, I, I mean, we have 1.4 million people here in Calgary and it, Something that I quite often say to folks is every one of those 1.4 million people has a story. And I think what you see in journalism today is, is a real focus on those main issues, the top issues, whether they're provincial, whether they're the really important city hall issues. But you can go on everybody's website and you can find pretty much the exact same story in each one. And I think that there's a lot of great stories that would bring Calgarians together. They would inform Calgarians a little bit more. They would, they would help us all realize and recognize that shared experience we have living in the city here. So just so the readers know that you're not just some Joe off the street, can you give them a bit of a background of your, your time in journalism? Sure. Well, how far do you want me to go back, Andrew? Right, uh, right from the very beginning? Sure, that would work. Okay, well, you know what? Let me take you back just to to understand how the evolution of Darren Krause took place. When I was about 16, I think it was 16, uh, the first Gulf War happened. And there were CNN reporters in Hotel Baghdad. And, it, and this was the first time that we were actually able to see actual war footage happen in real time. Uh, this is obviously when the the, the Gulf War was was first being launched. And there were bombs raining down on, on Baghdad. And I thought at the time that I really, that is something that I really wanted to do was, was to be a journalist. I'd been writing, like I, my mom still has stories that I wrote when I was in elementary school and, and all the way through. And, and I was a really strong English student. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that when I applied to journalism school or public relations school to Mount Royal College, uh, I didn't get in. So I thought, oh man, I better find a different way to do this. So I kept writing and I kept writing and I kept writing. And I finally sold my first freelance piece when I was about 25 years old. Uh, it was Profit X. It was uh, the web version of Profit Magazine. And so from there, I parlayed that into a couple of more pieces. And then eventually my mom one day had found this listing in the Okotoks newspaper for a journalism job at the Vulcan Advocate, which is a weekly newspaper. And so I applied. I didn't get the job. I thought I interviewed well, but I didn't get the job. And the one thing that held me back was uh, I wasn't a journalism grad, but they liked my stuff. So... A couple of weeks go by and they call me back. I, I get a call and they say, look, Darren, you were our second candidate. The first person didn't work out. How would you come to work with us? I spent two years there uh, and went from reporter to editor, as most young journalists do in the weekly newspaper world. I went from there, and uh, but working in a weekly newspaper, you don't make a whole lot of cash. And so I still 
was able to work as a freelance writer. And after those two years, I was able to make more money freelance writing than I was able to as a weekly newspaper journalist. So I ended the weekly newspaper journalism. Um, then through, you know, a, a, a divorce, I ended up moving back to Calgary and there was this upstart newspaper. And I just thought, wow, this might be a real opportunity for me to get in as a freelancer with a daily newspaper. And it was the Metro. It was just new. This is back in 2007. So I had emailed the editor, uh, at that time it was Paul Weick. And he gave me an opportunity a couple of weeks later. He called me. I remember I had my kids in the supermarket and he goes, hey, do you want to fill in uh, in the newsroom during the Calgary Stampede? Uh, my reporter is going to be down at the Stampede and I need somebody to take on local news. And I said, sure. So long story short, because I could go on about the, the history, I... Uh, I turned that into a full-time reporting job. Then six months later, I was promoted to managing editor. And then I spent 10 years as the managing editor for the Metro Calgary newspaper. Uh, and unfortunately, after my departure, um, about a year and a half later, uh, it, it no longer exists in its print form and it's a web version called the Star Calgary. I'm sure those two things are related, aren't they? Um, maybe a little bit. So, you know, but, but it's really the launching point for what I'm doing now. Uh, one of the things that really was important to me at, at Metro, if we were going to set Metro apart from the sun, CBC, the, the other TV players, we needed to have a sort of focus. And we really wanted to focus on community journalism. And I brought that with me from my time at the Vulcan Advocate. I realized how important those fall fairs were, how covering the AAA midget hockey team, uh, all of those things were extremely important to the community. The graduations, you know, if you're not covering those things, you're really not talking about uh, the important things in a community. So I brought that with me to, to Metro and when I left Metro and we started to see the way the Star newspaper was going, I thought there's a real opportunity here. And so that leads to the next step, which was Livewire Calgary. So let's talk a bit about uh, your time at Metro and uh, the sort of the, the background back dealing of, of why you ended up leaving there, because I think that's of interest to a lot of people, because it wasn't just a Oh, you know, we can't uh, we can't afford to keep doing this. I think there was some ideological discrepancies between you and and uh, the head office in Toronto. Is that right? The head office in Toronto. I think that says all that you need to really say. Yeah, there was. And the interesting thing, and I think it's important for listeners to know, uh, we were the most read daily newspaper, daily print newspaper in the city from Monday to Friday, uh, just before I left. We were also the most profitable. And I know in the journalism world or in the newspaper world, when you say profit, you kind of like, what? Profit? But we were profitable in, in Calgary. And so, the, so it really was an ideological thing. And what it came down to was this, this desire to report a certain way. And, 
and I, and I've said it before, so I'm not I'm not telling tales out of school. But the Toronto Star has a very specific mandate. They follow the Atkinson principles, which is which are are very liberal, progressive principles, um, and and they apply that to their journalism. You know, they're very big social justice. You know what, social justice warriors. I that there's no other way to put it. Um, I always felt like it was important to maintain as much content that was unbiased. Let the opinion columnists write their opinion and and sway people with their opinion. Uh, but the news should be very, very straightforward. And one of the things that I go back to, and this is something that I read recently, uh, Marty Baron, uh, Washington Post editor, he said, journalism needs to be done the way that science is done. And when you conduct an experiment, scientists observe and they report on on what the result of that experiment is. They don't say, yeah, but if if this were to happen, then, you know, here's what the outcome would have been, or here's what the outcome is that we would have liked. He said, if you do journalism the way that you do science and you and journalists are observers and we report what we observe in that experiment or story as it be in in journalism uh, that's that's true journalism and i felt like we were steering away from that and we were we were sort of trying to bend story narratives to the way that we wanted them and so it it makes sense then that you when you left decided to found something that would uh, speak to those those values and those beliefs in journalism. Uh, is it fair to say that that's what Livewire is? Is that the gap in the market that you feel that you're, uh, you're filling? Yeah, so the gap that we're trying to fill is, is twofold, Andrew. First off, we really want to get back to the community. I think it's evidence in some of the stories that we do. Uh, we just, uh, Aaron Toombs, who's a, who's a colleague of mine at Livewire, He's done a couple of stories. We just did a story about a, a riverbend rink and an Evanston outdoor winter playground. Nobody else is covering those stories, but the people in Riverbend and the people in Evanston are just tickled that somebody cares enough to send resources out to these communities to mark these amazing events, to, to chronicle some of the work that they've put into building their community. And that's what's really missing in local news today is, is celebrating those small victories that we have in our communities. But also we wanna to try to maintain that objective approach to journalism. Uh, we try not to sensationalize. Uh, there are some times when you know, certain things happen and there's just a really good word to describe it. But for the most part, we, we, try, to do, we, we try to deliver stories that are, that are balanced. Uh, I know that there's a, a school of thought in journalism that believes that you should report basically on on the right thing. And I, I think for a lot of people, right is subjective. I think we've seen that more so now with go, going through the whole pandemic than we ever have in, in recent history. So, so we really wanted to make sure that, that people could see their community in Livewire Calgary, uh, but also trust that we were delivering them information that was not put through uh, either a right side of the spectrum filter or a left side of the spectrum filter. So how can you ensure that you're not accidentally or unintentionally lapsing into a bias one way or the other? It seems like that's one of the hardest things to do is to say, well, 
I'm the most objective person in the room. So obviously anything that I report is objective. How do you uh, keep tabs on yourself and on Livewire to make sure that you don't fall one way or the other? It's a great question. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to do is, is we always have to take a step back from our work and we, we need to go, okay, so is this the most accurate way of, of portraying the story? And it can be in the language that you use. It can be in, in one of the common things that happens in our business is um, omission. You, you specifically don't include another certain fact that balances thing, things out because you're, you're trying to almost like, and you would understand this, the, you're, you're almost trying to make sure that the case that you're making in your story uh, creates that, that beyond a reasonable doubt sort of situation. And you do that by, by omitting some of the important aspects of the story. And, and unfortunately, I've had to call out certain journalists in the past, some who have worked with me, um, but others who are in the industry. And, and I say, yeah, but you're leaving this out. And it's really important to tell that aspect because you're not giving people the whole truth. I think that leads to the question of what is a journalist? And uh, one of the things that you have in your Twitter bio, which you've had for a while now, is that activist does not equal journalist. Can you elaborate a bit about that, uh, that theory of yours? Sure. Journalists document. Uh, I can go out and I can walk out on the street in this beautiful, almost spring day, and I can tell you the very, very specific things that happen. That's journalism. Where it gets into activism is when you start to talk about that atmosphere, that world around you with a certain bent and with a certain motivation because you have, you have a, an end goal. Uh, our end goal is just to make sure that people are informed with the best information as journalists. As an activist, you are actively trying to persuade or dissuade people from doing certain things. And I think those waters have become really muddied in the media world these days. And why do you think that is? Well, it's simple to me, money. Uh, money speaks volumes. I think, uh, and this goes back to my time at the Toronto Star, uh, where the CEO had very specifically said, okay, we know that this certain group of people is going to pay for our news, pay as in subscriptions uh, online. They are going to pay for the news. So we're going to create the news for those people. And I think you see it in Rebel News. I think you see it in the Western Standard. I think you see it in places like Progress Alberta or Alberta Advantage. You are writing very specifically or, or podcasting very specifically for a certain audience. So you can whip up that emotion. You can, you, you can make them feel passionate about a certain topic and you get them to spend their money. Uh, there's no better example of that. And it's not a, a, a media one, just so just so listeners have an idea, explain to me how the recent trucker convoy got more than $6 million in donations. And that's because their message of, of division, of, of freedom was very, very focused and very, very directed towards a certain group of people. And those certain group of people or that certain group of people was prepared to pay money to further that message. 
And media caught on to that once advertising revenue started to go down, media caught on to that, hey, the way that we're going to have to get people to cover the cost of our business is by creating content that makes them want to pay for it. And that's a really, really slippery slope for the business to go down. Now, I, I forget who said this, but I'd like your reaction to this idea that the, the purpose of a newspaper, say, isn't to tell you the news, it's to sell ads. What would you say to someone who said that? Well, if you talk to my old publisher, whom I, I respect a great deal, uh, he would say the same thing. And I think that's the, that's the sort of system that we need to eliminate because from a journalist perspective, you always think, well, nobody's going to see the ads if there isn't great content. If, if people don't have a reason to go and view that content, nobody's ever going to see the ads. I, to counter that, that point, I, I would always say, if I write a great exclusive news story on the back of a napkin with no ads, trust me, I will get more people reading the back of that napkin than you will if you have trash in your newspaper. And I could probably sell my ad space for a lot more because people, that's what people love today. They love that exclusive content. They love information that they don't know. And, and I think more so than ever, that's the case. Now, I'd like to switch topics a sure. little bit here because uh, we've talked about activists are not journalists. Mm -hmm. I wonder in the 21st century, what is a journalist? Because we're seeing a lot more now with cell phones of people going out, recording stuff, uploading it to YouTube, say, and all of a sudden they're in a position of disseminating uh, the news, things that are novel. So what makes you different from someone who just goes out on their own and record stuff? Or is that person a journalist in their own bent? What do you see the difference being? Well, I guess if you go to the fundamental root of the word, they are a journalist because uh, you may have, when you were younger, write in, or, or written in a journal. I wrote in a journal. You know, just anytime you're documenting things, uh, I think that, that you can have that label of journalism applied to you. However, just because I put a Band-Aid on a scratch or I happen to splint my son's broken arm in the woods does not a doctor make me, right? So... So I, I think the one thing that separates the classically trained journalist or, or the one who, in my case, has, has the experience is the desire for, for facts, for information, and where possible, as much context as, as, as possible. For those who are putting stuff out on, on social media, just the random pe people, and, and, you know, I think yesterday there was a... Uh, a protest out here in the Beltline, and I did see the posts about the smoke bomb being uh, put out at that at the counter protesters. Um, I immediately took that with a grain of salt. Yes, on the surface, it looks horrific that these protesters apparently smoke bombed the counter protesters, but I had no context, so I wasn't w willing to retweet it. I wasn't willing to comment. I wasn't willing to say anything until I have more information. I need to know what the context around that was. And I need to make sure that when I'm putting that information out, uh, that it's the truth. There's a reason why in journalism, when I get a good scoop 
I don't immediately put it out there and go, oh, you know, Livewire Calgary has learned, you know, this, this super exclusive, awesome story. I usually get two, if not three backup sources to make sure that my information is 100%. And that's, you know, right there, that could be one of the biggest differentiators between myself and somebody out on the street just documenting. They, there's a lot of assumptions that go into social media posts. And whereas I might see the social media post, but then I'm calling the police. I might be calling the city councilor. I might be calling the community association to go, hey, what actually happened here? Can you give me a little bit more? And I think that's the differentiator that, that we're talking about here. I, I like that you brought up social media because I think the change in medium affecting journalism recently has been a fascinating one to see over the last, say, 10 years. You were working at a daily paper, like a physical paper for a long time. And now I think almost everything is basically online. How has that, if it has shaped uh, the way that journalism produced, how has it shaped the way journalism is produced? And how has it shaped the way that we consume journalism? Well, the one thing that sticks out in my mind right now, and this is something that we would never do, not even when Twitter was first being used for media, probably back in like 2009, 2010, we would never take a cop brief or, or a city news release. And because we weren't going to cover it, screenshot the release and post it out on Twitter as information. That would never have happened before. There would be a brief written up. It would appear either online or it would appear on the web. But, but in, in today's world, um, <laughs> it's the old Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights thing. If you're not first, you're last, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because, because that's, that's the case. If you're not reporting first that the, that the province has lifted or, or, or they're going into their step two of the, of the public health restrictions, um, then you might as well not produce the story because the people who are engaged that way on social media have already seen it. And that's probably the biggest change that I've seen in the business over the past, I guess, what is it now, 15 years, is the, the speed at which news moves. And to be frank, it, for, for a lot of journalists, it's... Uh, there are many angst-ridden days because you know you're up. As soon as a story breaks, you're up against that clock. And if you're not out there within 30 seconds, um, you're, you're, you're old news almost. So how do you deal with that sort of anxiety while still doing what you want to do, which is report facts and not turn something around quickly and then make a mistake? So preparation is one. Uh, most of us know when stories are coming uh, and we can do all of the preparatory work that we need to. Uh, for something like, say, the public health restrictions, the information is going to be pretty straightforward. Uh, we're moving to step two on March 1st and the premier has a comment. So pretty much all of the backstory that has been written about before uh, in prior stories that kind of information you can put out or, or, or you can put together and then you just wait for the official word and then you put the quote in and boom, the story's out. So a lot of, a lot more preparation, but I think when you're talking about something that is new to everybody, uh, there's a lot of anxiety and I have smashed many a desks and I have 
slammed many a computer that's not working as fast as I need it to work because, um, you know, you're like wanting to get that story out right away. Um, but to your point, Andrew, we're always making sure that we're not going out. And sometimes that frustration, that anxiety is a direct result of somebody not giving you that second confirmation or somebody not able to convert, uh, confirm a specific detail that another person had, uh, had provided you. That's where sometimes the anxiety comes in when you're delivering a news story. Now let's shift gears a little bit sure. because I want to circle back to something you were talking about, which is community news. Mm -hmm. Local news, I think, would be would be analogous. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But that doesn't seem to be the news that fits the motto of it bleeds, it leads, right? Mm -hmm. I think that for a journalist, if you want to get those Pulitzers, if you want to get those awards, you have to write something that's cutting edge and you have to write about you know, a war going on or something like that. Reporting on an ice rink isn't anyone's idea of glamorous. And I think there's a bit of, of glamour to the idea of publishing stories. So I'm wondering if that sort of status seeking in journalism is, in your opinion, part of why community news isn't seeing the sort of uh, coverage that it should be. And I'm just spit spitballing here. So why do you think community news is A, important, and two, why is there such a gap in the market for it that you've had to come in and fill that gap? So let me start at the very beginning. Uh, local news is not community news. Hmm. Uh, local news is that general catch-all 35,000-foot view of what's happening in Calgary. That's the stuff that everybody is doing. Community news or neighborhood news is the stuff that's happening in the neighborhoods. It's the rink, uh, the Riverbend rink, the Evanston Park. It's, it's those kinds of things. It's the, it's the story about the cut through. I, I believe it was in, um, I want to say, just along Memorial Drive in the, in the Northeast, maybe Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge is where it was. It's, it's those stories that community members are talking about and they go oh man that that cut through along the cp rail tracks gosh that's been a that's been a problem for years uh and and it's always something that they bring up with their counselor it's always something that they bring up you know when they meet when they meet sally or joe in the coffee shop in their neighborhood uh but it doesn't get reported on because and this is where we get to the other part of it it, it doesn't win pulitzers and uh, editors have trained journalists and journalists get this idea. And, and I've said it to a number of journalists. And, and there's, there's one particular story that, that, that I'll tell that kind of illustrates this. But there are journalist stories, stories that journalists think are important. And those are the ones that they go after. And then there are the stories that people actually care about and the, peop the, 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 the ones that, that, that they talk about. And so... I, I had a journalist, uh, probably one of the best journalists I've ever w worked with, uh, you know, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy and I had a conversation early on in his career, but be before he became one of the top reporters in Alberta. Um, but it was, it, it, it was along this line of, of where we would spend so much time doing this story that we thought was so important. And we just thought like we just patting ourselves on the back and such a, such a 
feeling of satisfaction. And then that story, despite how much we would promote it on social media, you know, it being in the paper, it might get like 200, 300 views. You go do a community story like this one in uh, in Riverbend, or actually the Evanston one is a better example because that story, and keep in mind that we're not one of the bigger players in the city. Uh, it got probably about 1,500 to 1,800 views. That's because when you reach into those communities, and especially when you're the only one who does that, everybody wants to share that story. And that's because it matters to them. Think of all the hours that were invested by community members into putting that Evanston Park together. Um, and for the mass media, the mainstream media, to totally ignore something like that, in my mind, is to essentially totally ignore what's happening in your city. And I think that that's, that's happening far too often. But I want to tell you one other quick story because it's it's pretty straightforward. But a journalist that I that I remember working with, well, actually, still keep in contact with him, Morgan Majeski. We are at the old uh, Boston Pizza on Memorial Drive, and and you know Morgan and I have this conversation as I have with a lot of young journalists. They want to tackle those Pulitzer Prize winning stories. You know, I just want to make a difference in the world. And I said, Morgan, you know that story that you did? And, and it was a time when, when cell towers were a big issue in the city. You know that story that you did about the church and the cell tower and the opposition in the community for that? You forced the city to pause and write a letter to, even though the city has no standing in these, to, to write a letter to, to industry or, or um, I can't remember what, what the, Canadian, uh, the CRTC. And the, the fact that you are making a change in that neighborhood and those residents feel like somebody's listening to their story, that's changing the world. You can change the world in your backyard and that has a much greater impact than spending your entire career chasing that one story that is going to solve a Pulitzer Prize winning issue. And that's always the way that I've approached that local journalism aspect is, is if I'm telling that story about the Riverbend rink and their funding shortfall, and we can help them generate the money so that they can get their rink built and, I, and we can change the, the course of history in a lot of ways. I know that might be a little bit of hyperbole, but change the course of history for a lot of people who live in that area. To me, that's changing the world. And that's the approach that I've brought to journalism with Livewire Calgary and before that with Metro. So it seems like there's an incentive then for journalists to chase after these big stories, but that's not the one that they should be listening to. It, you know, and some people might even say, well, that's just your opinion, Darren, right? What's wrong with chasing the Pulitzer Prize winning stories? In fact, that's that's why we have Pulitzers is to encourage people to do that deep dive, that deep digging. Uh, it seems like it's almost two different types of journalism, if you will. Uh, so why did you pick community journalism over, you know, awards journalism, for lack of a better term? And you've you've been recognized, you've won awards, I should mm -hmm. say. So it's not like you've completely divested yourself of that. You know, what's your take? Um, 
That's a really great question. I don't want to get all cheesy. Uh, I, I just care about the community and I just care, like I know uh, I have a family, I'm a father of four. Uh, I know some of the struggles that we face. I know some of the challenges in our community, but I also know that the things that people talk about more are, are those things that really matter to them, whether or not their, their black bin is being picked up on time or, or the snow clearing in their community or that riverbend rink. Those are the things that they're talking about that that we can really make a difference. I could write 10 stories about how the government isn't reporting COVID cases ac as accurately as it should. It ain't going to change a thing. Um, there are so many roadblocks put in the way of, of getting that information, accessing. You could spend two years, and I'm not saying it's not worth it because you're right. It is worth it. But for an organization like mine, I would prefer to chip away at the big picture and and how we can make a difference in communities one small story at a time. Uh, it just appeals to me. There's nothing better than than having somebody come up to you and say, thank you so much for taking the time to come to our community forum, for coming out to this community event and taking photos. Uh, thank you for, for being the only one out here who is covering this important community story. For me, that's, that's what journalism is. That's, that's the richness of, of the job, um, along with holding institutions to account. You can do both. We just choose to focus um, a large portion of our energy towards the community. So why should a citizen choose to read community news when he could read about the Ukrainian invasion or something global happening, something far more salacious? Well, I think that you should do both. Mm. Uh, I mean, I've been glued to the, to the uh, situation in Ukraine and uh, it, it's tragic. But I think using that entry point, uh, they have illustrated the importance of community journalism. I'm, I've been following uh, the Kiev Independent and it has been providing, you know, just even minute microscopic updates to keep people of Kiev, but also people around the world informed about what's going on. So if we use that sort of a lens to look at your community and and why why it's important and why people should be reading it. A lot of the content that we read today um, is constructed in a way to make you choose one side or the other, and it, that's just by design. There's usually uh, opposing sides, and I think with community journalism, there's a certain identity that that it brings to a community. There's a certain um, cohesiveness that it can bring to a community. Not to say that many of those stories don't have some sort of conflict, but there is a real uh, sense of bringing people together. And, you know, I'm going to continue to go back to, to Riverbend or, or Evanston, but when we put a story like the Evanston one out, and if we can impact somebody in, in Haysboro, or if we can impact somebody in Acadia or, or Fairview or uh, Varsity, and we can make them go, hey, 
you know what? I have this idea for how we could make our community a bit better. The folks in Evanston did it. Maybe we should reach out to them and we should ask them, how did you go about doing it? You know, who did you have to talk to? How did you get it started? If, if we can have more of those kind of connections through a little bit more reading of community news, I think in the end, it's gonna make the city a better place. And that's why, not to bring it full circle, but that's why I think it's the best idea or one of the best ideas for making Calgary a better place. I love that, thank you. Uh, so let's start wrapping this up now because sure. I've had you for a long time. I'm curious, uh, what do you think about the state of journalism currently? <laughs> okay, you just said you wanted to start wrapping this up. <laughs> I made a mistake, I know. <laughs> um, there are a lot of journalists doing a lot of great work and there are a lot of dedicated journalists. I have the utmost respect for, for folks in my profession. The concern I have, and it's likely a byproduct of the world that we live in right now, journalists that are coming out of school uh, are already have much stronger biases than I would say I had coming out of, well, coming up through the ranks. There's a, uh, and maybe this is the dangerous thing, and I'll probably take a lot of heat for saying this. I think it's fostered. I think it's cultivated in universities to think uh, from, shall I say, a more progressive mindset, to think that, that these ideals are the ones that we should uphold as journalists. Instead of focusing on the ideal of, as Marty Baron said, treating it like a science experiment and being there to document it and share with the world exactly what you're seeing. And not enough of that happens. So there are still journalists who do that. And a lot of them take a lot of heat for doing it because, of course, you get folks saying, well, why are you telling their side of the story when this is clearly the right way? Um, but those are the most valuable journalists out there. The state of journalism in general, though, I do believe that that we're in a golden age of journalism. And I think you and I, I I'm pretty sure that you and I have talked about this before. And that's because there is an intense desire for information, an intense desire for content. And I think that with independents like mine or others, uh, there's a real opportunity for more stories to be shared. And if that means that, that at some point we drown out the, the value or importance of something like the paper of record, Calgary Herald, or uh, some of the others like, like the CBC, um, then so be it. I think that's just a natural course of things. And I think where the, the trajectory that journalism is headed on is probably a really good one. What we have to do, as with any growth, is you have to get through some of the, the, the tough phases. And right now, the tough phase is, is people are really seeing that the way to profit from journalism is by polarizing it. And it goes back to that money equation that, that we were talking about before. And I think that the pendulum will swing the other way. And I'm starting to see this already where people are like, I can't trust the news that I get because I know that it's coming from this point of view and, or this point of view. 
what I really want to read is something that I know I can trust. And I know that that is giving me the facts and letting me make the decision instead of presupposing the decision for me. So on that point, then I, I'd like to leave listeners with a bit sure. of a, here's how you can go do this. Okay. What are some pointers or some things to look for when you're trying to sort out your media diet? What can you tell people to say, okay, look at this, avoid this when they're trying to find the news, trying to find the truth? Good question. I think that you have to be really uh, discerning. You have to be a discerning news consumer. You have to know when the kind of language that's being used or the perspective that one is taking, uh, that you need to take it with a grain of salt. But the other thing that, that you should do, and I have said this numerous times on podcasts like this or, or in, in other situations, you need to challenge your stuff or, or challenge your views with content that doesn't align with your values. Because whether you know it or not, uh, or whether you consciously accept it or not, it's making you see things from a different perspective that maybe hedges you a little bit. And it makes you think, well, hey, you know what? There is somebody out there who thinks this way. And while I don't agree with it, I can start to understand where they're coming from. And I think what that leads to is a lot less division. And we start to find that and I'm not saying it has to be an exact center, but a better center point for conversation, uh, for information. And we aren't, um, I know that one of the counselors, Giancarlo Carra, likes to say weaponization of information. And that's, that's what people need to avoid is anytime information is being weaponized, when you know that there are other facts out there, that are not being told, I think it's time to really take a step back and think about the kind of news you're consuming. But going back to, to, to just finish up, challenge yourself. Challenge yourself with, with content that doesn't align with your views and try to understand it from a different point of view. And I think that you'll find over time, you start to realize and accept that somebody can have a different perspective of, uh, of things than you. And it actually might lead to better conversation. And through that, uh, a normalization of that balanced view of journalism and of news itself. Great. Well, that seems like a good place to end it. So uh, Darren, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Livewire. I believe it's underscore DK. I don't look at my Twitter handle. Uh, LivewireCalgary.com. Um, and if I can plug uh, anyone who wants to support local journalism, uh, Patreon.com slash LivewireCalgary. Great. Darren Kaus, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We'd also like to acknowledge that Idea City was made on Treaty 7 land and was made possible by Hunter Hub for Social Innovation. This podcast was produced by Work Nicer, Andrew Gilbert, Kurt Archer, Simone Pabretza, and the TEDxYYC graphics team. Music for this podcast is by Sergeant and Comrade.